Welcome back to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast. I am Pastor Jeremy. And I'm Pastor George. And we're back with another episode and uh, ready to dive into a, a topic that's kind of interesting. I yeah. think it's timely. We'll see how we okay. we'll see as we get there. Yeah. Um, but if you're just joining us, welcome. We are a uh, father and son pastoral team serving local church in Methuen, Massachusetts. And uh, our goal in this podcast is to bring you into the uh, into the study, to have the conversations along with us that we tend to talk about throughout the course of the week. Things that you can't really preach on necessarily or teach on, but they're still uh, biblically influenced thoughts and takes on culture and how we live in the world around us and how the church is set up yeah. and you know, things that we do. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're here for and that's what we do and we're glad you've joined us. And uh, if you have a friend who shared this with you, thank them profusely. Yes. Tell them it's the coolest thing you've heard all week. Please. Um, yeah. So, and then repeat it, you know, send it off to somebody else because your friend will also say, this was the coolest thing you sent me all week. Thank you. Um, and we want your friends to like you. So send them our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we, uh, we kick off our, uh, our episode every week with a theological term. The Theological Term of the Week. This week's Theological Term of the Week is mid-tribulationalism. I've been trying to figure out if ism belongs there, but I guess it does. It's a belief, so mid, right? Yeah, it is a belief, yeah. right? So mid-tribulation. Uh-huh. So you've been talking about these these ideas, right? We're we're in um, eschatological terms, yes. right? We're talking about the end times or the things to come, yes. And uh, we're, we're working through Christ's return. Yes, these, uh, has, we we uh, I think you know all Christians should believe that Christ's return is imminent, imminent. It's coming soon. We talked about that one, right? yes. Um, but the way that that works in regard to what we read in Scripture is there's up for, open for debate, yeah. largely because it hasn't happened yet, and so yes. we get to kind of think through why. Uh, how to apply scripture to it. Exactly. And so we know that there is a a time of God's wrath being poured out on sin and evil in the world. Yes. And and there is a time where the church will be gathered to him. Yes. And a lot of these uh belief systems or or theological perspectives come from the, figuring out the timing of those things. Always the timing. Yeah. And, and the timing issue is, you know, we've talked about that. Is it is it that all of this happens before the millennium, which is the kingdom of God established here on earth? Mm -hmm. Is it after the millennium where the kingdom of God is established on earth? Is, yeah. it, is it, you know, and there are two different views of that. Yeah. But when we talk about tribulation views, we're really talking about something that happens before the kingdom. Right. So, so if you believe in a pre-millennium perspective on the yes. times, right? Like the millennium is yet, the the millennial rule of Christ is yet to, is come. Yet to come. Then you're going to have to deal with this tribulation period. Yes. Uh, still somewhere. Somewhere, right? right. And it, it might be that, yeah, it's already happened or, or it's also yet to happen. It'll come. But then right. this mid-tribulation piece is what we're honing in on or moving right. in on today, right? right. So mid-tribulationalism mm -hmm. is the belief that the tribulation is going to take place Three and a half years into the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. So it says that the tribulation is going to be seven years long. Seven years of tribulation, belief. yes. And we get believes. that from Daniel chapter nine. Yep. And then the um, the debate is: Are Christians here throughout? Um, are they? That's the post-tribulation. Are yep. they? Or do they? 
go halfway through, which is what we're talking about today. Mid-tribulationalism. Or or does the church get to leave early? Which is next year, which is next Next, week's. I hope it's not next year. We'll try and do it sooner than that. Please, yeah. Yeah. That's next week's conversation, Mm -hmm. right? But mid-tribulationism is that, and and this is the one that maybe you laugh at, Hmm. right? Um, There was a time when mid-tribulationalism was was just kind of like, is that a thing? Is that a joke? Um, and and it, it has actually developed more recently. There's an, actually a, a strain of people that have developed this concept of mid-tribulationalism um, just a little bit more than, than it had been. Hmm. And uh, so let, let's, let's lay the foundations. There is a biblical foundation for mid-tribulationalism. Mm-hmm. And that biblical foundation, as we know, from Daniel chapter 9, that the tribulation is going to last seven years, that there is one last week or heptad left, according to Daniel chapter 9, and that's the tribulation period, the day of the Lord. Hmm. Interestingly enough, when you get to chapter 12, God says to Daniel, Daniel, look, I want you to understand that there are days in those years, and he counts out and he says, blessed are those who make it through, I can't remember the numbers, sorry, mm. but 1,350, which adds up to like three and a half years. Uh, okay. okay. Blessed are those who make it through those 1,350 days, and then may, the blessed are those who survive to the end of the, and then he adds in, in more math, and what it comes out to is... um. Two things. One is if you add the two together, you get you get seven years. Um, interestingly enough, there's a second number in Daniel 12 that adds up to seven years and 30 days. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Right? Interesting how that works, right? And then that's the concept of the return of the Lord at the end of those seven years and 30 days. So... That's one side of it. That that moves the mid-tribulationalists and they say, well, why would God divide the time frame up into two periods of days if he's not going to change how he's working in the middle? And maybe the change that takes place in the middle is the return of the Lord. Hmm. Right? So, yeah. So it's not just a removal of the church halfway through. It's a return of Christ. Huh? Well, it's this tribulation. Christ. He's already this, here doing the rapture. work. Right. So Christ returns at the midpoint and removes... His church at the midpoint. Okay. All right. The other piece of this, which has become very interesting, and it actually has absorbed a lot of Messianic Jews, Hmm. um, led by a guy named Marv Rosenthal, who used to be with a group called Israel My Glory, and Israel My Glory was a a strong, we're going to use a word haven't haven't used, dispensational, pre-tribulational group. Um, they used to put together some really, really good articles on uh, Judaism and the tribulation. They worked a lot on that. Um, Marv, about 20, 25 years ago, um, suddenly says, hey, wait a second. I think the Bible teaches a mid-tribulational view. And boom, he was gone from Friends of Israel. <laughs> um, and And he came out with a book. And he not only links this idea from Daniel that you've got, why would you break the, why would you break it up into two time frames? Mm-hmm. He also jumps into Revelation, 
In Revelation, there's this interesting thing that happens. Um, there is a scripture that says that there is a, an earthquake in Jerusalem. I think it's somewhere around Revelation 12, but don't hold me to that one. Um, there's an earthquake in Jerusalem. It divides the Mount of Olives. 25,000 people in the city of Jerusalem die. But then the statement says the rest repent and turn to the Lord. Hmm. Rosenthal's argument is, there you have it. God is going to save Israel if the focus of Daniel and the 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 are the salvation of Israel. Mm -hmm. Then it makes sense that the rapture would come when Israel is finally included into the church. He says that's where it happens. After this earthquake and Jerusalem and all of Israel turns to the Lord, God's going to rapture the church and take them out. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, it's probably the weakest of the three arguments. <laughs> yeah, it feels creative. Yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, you do continue. I mean, so I would take those to division. Yeah as uh, identifying that there is a time frame. There's two things about that division of the 1300 and whatever days. And I can even tell you why the extra 30 days exist. But so there's a, there's a division here and that division is twofold. One is, I think that in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, um, Israel does not identify God's hand in the judgment that is falling on them. Hmm. And and here's one of those things that separates mid and pre-tribulationalism from post-tribulationalism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism. And that is, in the mid-tribulation and pre-tribulational view, there is a reality and an existence of a national group of people who are God's glory and God's praise called Israel. Mm-hmm. Right? The mid-tribulational view says Israel gets saved in mass in the mid-tribulation and the rapture takes place. Hmm. My view is that, that those first three and a half years of that tribulation, Israel is not recognizing God. They're continuing to do what they want to do. They've turned their back on God. Three and a half years into it, God, God's work, the, this earthquake, some other things, that the second thing that happens— it turns Israel, and Israel suddenly says, oh, we've blown it. Jesus is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they turn as a people and say, God, we're embracing you. We repent of our sin. That's the point of that three and a half years. The other aspect of that is that three and a half years in, according to, you know, there's this other aspect of Daniel 9, and that is that, that uh, the Antichrist makes an agreement with Israel, even rebuilds the temple. Mm-hmm does all kinds of things to help and support Israel, and then three and a half years in, turns his back on Israel, and suddenly Israel is now his enemy, and he's against Israel. And, you know, the, the 30 days is because at the end of the seven years, the, uh, the Antichrist sees his only defense as uh, his only out is to destroy Israel, and so he mobilizes the armies of the world, which takes 30 days to come into battle against Israel. So the end of the seven years, 
there is a mobilization of all of the world's armies against the people of God, and Jesus returns to this earth and destroys that army. And that's like the whole like Armageddon, whole Armageddon battle thing, there. Right? Yeah. Yep. So, so mid tribulationalism is it's in it has become a means of including national Israel in the rapture of the church, which of course creates the issue of. But then, what is this church? That what is this Israel that's running from? You know, so you got some problems there. Okay. But it's also coming out of why? Why do we have this division of? the seven years into three and a half years and three and a half years. And the answer that many come up with is, is that's where the rapture, that's happens. where the rapture happens. So the options here. So if you're going to do something with this, so you have to make some assumptions, you know, the assumption number one is this is a, the seven, it's a real seven year period, right? Yes. Yes. Plus 30 days. And that, that is yet to come. And it's a time of God's wrath, out, outpouring of wrath. You need to make the assumption then that God still has something to do with Israel. Yes. Right? Yes. Which is, you know, we can get into that in a future theological term. Yep. And then, you know, there's you know, a lot, a lot here because it's all future stuff. And so we have to kind of craft to our best ability. We kind of have to look at the data of scripture that is reliable and truthful, but not complete in those areas. Not necessarily like giving us a complete picture of what's going to happen. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And we have to make some conjectures. And yes. so th these are guesses, you know, yeah. based on information that we know is true and accurate. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a quarterback mm. mm -hmm. in football. It's, it's August now. Mm. So we Getting can close. talk football, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, kind of like a football quarterback fading back his five steps and then throwing into the middle of the playing field, expecting his wide receiver to end up there because that was the agreed upon plan. Mm -hmm. And he's actually going to run his route and the ball, he doesn't throw the ball to where the receiver is. He's throwing the ball to where he see, he, the receiver will the be re where the receiver will be. Right. It's the concept of, and this has become a bad word. It's the concept of deductive reasoning that mm. says, if, if I take all of what the scripture says and then I extend it out from what the scripture says to what, what I would assume to exist because of what the scripture says, that's deductive. That mm. says, okay, if God is, for example, if God is truth mm -hmm. and everything that God says is true, I can deduce that things that are lies are not from God. Mm -hmm. Of course, God will actually say inductively, I'm not a man that I should lie, nor the son of man that I should change my mind, and says that like three times in the Old Testament. So I guess it's, you know, but you would say, okay, if this is true, okay, then it must come from God because it's truth. If, if it's a lie, then I can deduce that it can't be from God because God doesn't tell lies. Mm, mm -hmm. So I get that. That all makes okay, sense. Go that, back to mid-tribulationalism, yeah, mid mid right? So I'm, I'm taking, yeah, I'm taking some things. I'm making some assumptions. Yeah. And well, I'm projecting the, and, those out. Yeah, and the mid-trib person, this is what they're doing. And we yes. all do this. We level. all do it. And like I, so my history here, and I think one of the reasons I have this like, um, tension when it comes to unpacking Revelation and, and Daniel and all those things is, you know, 
I'm I'm so you, I hear like the Pat Robertsons of the world and the Seventh Day Adventists of the world who also do this sort of thing and have come yes. up with answers. And in my head, even though I'm a theologian, right, and I understand what they're doing, I understand what Scripture's doing, I understand what my tradition does. A lot of it all feels like the crazed guy at the detective pegboard with red red, red string yes, everywhere. Yes, it does. And it's hard to it's I've hard always... to draw the line between this guy's crazy and there might be something to this one. Yeah. I've always hated that guy by the way. Yeah. It's just I those those people as well-meaning as they are are the, some of the most repulsive people for studying the book of Revelation. It's like I don't want to be that guy. Right. It it is it has hurt my like yeah. enjoyment of Revelation. Absolutely. Because right? it's this, the book is downright scary. It it's is. Just, it is. But what a gift it is. Yeah. Right. Like you know, if we don't have that piece of the story, yes, then you know, the New Testament is an entirely different thing. Yeah. 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 So it's a great gift of the Lord that we have it. Yes. And it is important to study. And you read, you know, you read basically the New Testament backwards from there. You read from the cross forward, you read Revelation backward. That helps establish who the church is and sure. what's, what its mission is. Sure. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's always been hard for me to have that person who's so obsessed with Revelation that it's all they talk about. They put all of these lines together and like, well, obviously it has to be this mid-tribulation thing because yeah, 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 look, yeah. like, you know, if you add up chapter numbers and verse numbers and the amount of letters in each of these words, you get to be this thing. Yes. And you're like, no, that, but the chapters and verses didn't exist. When it and was see, written. those people are, those people are so focused on trying to put all of the events together that they miss the beauty of the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going a little afield here, but... They miss the beauty of the book because the beauty of the book is that it truly is an eschaton. It truly is an ending, a last things, mm-hmm. right? Um, some caveats because he opens, he leaves some strings untied. But one of the exciting things about the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation has more Old Testament references and allusions than any other New Testament book. So what you have from John writing this book is he is attempting to take all of the themes of the Old Testament and bring them to conclusions in this book of Revelation through the perspective of the cross. And if you read the book of Revelation in that way, like you said, going backwards to the cross... But even going backwards from the cross to Abraham, mm-hmm. going backwards from the cross to, to the creation. Yeah. Once you do that, the book of Revelation is well, oh, awesome. This is a book that just it it just brings it all to a nice, well wrapped conclusion mm-hmm. that makes the entire the entire Bible live. Yeah. Um because, you know, prior to the book of Revelation and its acts, we have we have cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. In the current age, we have cliffhangers. This is why we. This is why we have so many disagreements. We have a cliffhanger. What about God and and Israel? Oh, God. God's not interested in Israel anymore. Some will say. Yeah. He's done with Israel. We're. It's, he's focused on the church. We're, the church is the new Israel. They, they the lost new, their. Yeah. Right. The entire right. book is about them, and yet. Right. right. And yet, and so the other side of it is, you know, then 
you know, creates the mind, well, if God could do that to Israel, could God do that to the church? Could he just throw the church aside and say, ah, I'm done working with the church too. They're, they're a bunch of nincompoops. I'm going to start a new group, right? Could he just, could he do that? Because he let go of Israel. He just, you know, threw Israel over, starts working on the church. You know, could you throw the church over? Is that, is that the kind of God we have? Hmm. You know, so you, you've got a problem there. I mean, um, we have this issue of, okay, so, you know, what's, what about heaven? What about eternity? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's promised, but it doesn't, we don't have it. There's no recording. There's no report of that. I mean, other than Isaiah 65 and 66. Just read that this morning. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, but you don't have, so you don't have closure. Book of Revelation provides closure. Yeah. On most things, there's some interesting little caveats in there. Totally, but. it's because it's again, it's it's prophetic in a sense, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's looking forward, and you don't get the full picture yeah. in that. You get the things that you need to know right now. Right, 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 right. And that's I think that's always been my tension with the Revelation obsessed. Yes, is okay. Like this all is very interesting, and I know that it matters. But how are you? How you proclaiming? Today? How are you proclaiming the gospel at the moment? Yes. Like how are you living the gospel at the moment? Is yes. the proclamation of the gospel just your interpretation of Revelation? Yes. Um, you know, yeah. or, or is there this, you know, this this kingdom come piece? You know, and what are you doing about the kingdom come and the establishment of the kingdom now? Yes. And you know, Very so those are, these are all these tensions I've always felt in that circumstance or when I'm interacting with people who, who have a deep passion for the end times. Like, okay, that's, that's really important, but like, I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a, so what do we do? Do we right. just, do we just study it and obsess over it? Or is there something else that the Lord would have for sure. us in the moment? Sure. Yep. So that's, that's always been my attention, but it is important to know this. And it's important to think through the different perspectives because when you interact, as pendulums, you're listening, pendulums don't swing yeah. to the middle. Right. So and as you're listening to this, it. yeah, as you're listening to this and uh, like, oh, you know, my brother-in-law believes this, right? Like now I understand where it fits in the whole story and why they think this. And, you know, hopefully it just kind of gives you a little bit more of a, um, a little bit more mental equipment yeah. to, yeah. to kind of make some decisions on yeah. that. So there you go. That's our theological term of the of week. The Theological Term of the Week. So we're working through some ideas here on mm. uh, the, uh, the, the, the topic of the day. And you know, obviously, you know, as pastors, we really care about the local church. We talk about that in the intro. I hope that if you're a fan of the show, you, you see that in us. Like we really care about... Um, just how the local church functions and establishes itself, how it thinks, how it operates. And, and that local church piece, that's like, you know, what are the individual members of like a local body of believers? What are they, what are they driven by? What, what, what kind of creates fear? What creates excitement? What are those actual like things that we kind of have to deal with as pastors? And uh, I think one of the things that, you know, ultimately we struggle with a lot as pastors is, well, it feels like a very strange direction that a lot of churches are taking. Yeah. You yeah. know, like we're in it. I, I've said to others, I feel like the church right now is walking through a period of history 
that theologians will study and will have a name for interesting um, in 20, 30 years. They will look back on the, what we're doing right now and what we're thinking right now. And there will be names of pastors and theologians that are currently serving that um, future seminary students will be studying. Yes. Um, it just feels like that at the moment. For both sides of this. Right. It feels like that at the moment. Yeah. You know, you, we look back, and the church does this now. Like, you look back at, like, is this church Calvinist or Arminian? Is this, you know, is this church, you know, egalitarian or are they complementarian? Yeah. Is this church, yeah. is this church, you know, believe, you know, is this church impacted by the Jesus seminar? And do they have, like, interesting, you know, is yeah. this the historical, you know, what, what seminar is this? And how do we see Jesus as a historical figure and also the son of God? And, you know, and, you know, do you, you know, we have all of these different things that have happened over history that as pastors, we have to study when yes. we go to seminary. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And the informers. And I feel like right now we're in one of those eras uh, where, yeah the the church you know as it tries to impact the its culture and as it tries to speak into a world that's really confused and yes. really struggling and really just unsettled you know i think there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors who are the great heart for people and a great heart for the lord who are trying to make decisions on how to just navigate their local body right mm -hmm, now mm -hmm, and i mm -hmm. think some of those decisions are wonderful and i think some of those decisions are cautionary tales yeah that's very true it's and very true. you know ultimately it all comes down to this this idea of being winsome as yes. a church yep that's that's the con that's yeah. the word you know because that's a piece that's important for us like we we don't you know the who who said the quote the church is the only organization that exists for its non-members um you know mm -hmm. it's yeah you know we we uh, we have people who are committed to these local churches, who help sustain it, who pray for it, who serve in it, who financially support it, and all of this is done for the people who have no interest in it, like at uh, some level. Like we yeah, want, you right. know, it's it's all actually done for the worship of the Lord and yes. for the discipleship. Um, but also, like we want people who don't know Jesus yet to come to know Him because knowing Jesus is more important than anything else in this world. Yeah. And so as we serve and as we look into the world and trying to communicate this unchanging gospel to the world around us, we're interacting with these people who are really untethered and who are really just struggling. Like what, you know, what am I supposed to believe? And all of these cultural, um, all of these cultural things that used to be things that were just cultural assumptions um, have become, are now in play and divisive. Yeah. Yeah. Having exactly. a conversation with one of our elders last week. Um, who was talking like they have a the, his grandmother was a politician and she was a conservative politician in a midwestern state um, but often got in trouble because she would side he was saying that she would side with democrats on certain issues like she thought like you know, back in the 70s that seatbelt laws weren't a terrible idea um mm -hmm. and you know and or that helmet laws weren't a terrible idea because ultimately those protect people that need protection and so conservatives would be angry with her because this was um government overreach yes. and people needed to have the freedom to make their own choices right um and but then like you know her her more liberal friends you know would be frustrated with their her conservative underpinnings everywhere else right yeah yeah um, but he said the thing was like back in the day like after they would debate all of this stuff on the floor They'd all go to each other's houses for dinner. They'd exactly. all go to the same yes. church in the weekend. Like yep. there was just like this different perspectives on how to care for people ultimately. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, on the conservative side, we care for people 
by creating an environment where they can succeed and putting the ownership of their future and their destiny on their shoulders. And if they're not capable, we find ways to equip them. Yes. And the, the, the liberal perspective was there are people who can't do that. They're not capable and they need our help and we're going to help them all the way through if necessary because it's the commitment of the state to care for its people who can't care for themselves. Right. And you have these different conflicts. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah. Like, yeah. as a Christian... I'm somewhere in the middle of those things too. I I I am all for personal responsibility, and I'm all for caring for people. And I, um, and so the tension of the Christian has always been somewhere not left or right. Yeah. But it feels like at the moment you have all of this being um, leveraged for political gain. The things that we used to just rely on and be confident in are now in play. Yeah. And before, like there's no scripture or verse that talks about wearing a helmet when you ride a motorcycle um, or or wearing a seatbelt while you're in a car, because how could there be? Right. Um, I mean, I guess you have the um, fence around the parapet. Fence around the parapet. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, in the Old Testament, right. Right. right? But like New there's- New Hampshire not... would do well to look at that. Yeah, right. New Hampshire is the only state that does not have a seatbelt law. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have those things, right? So as a Christian, like, you know, there's not a chapter or verse, but there are chapters and verses on things like homosexuality and, you know, right. and we point and the, the defense of the unborn yeah. and, um, and the, uh, um, that, you know, the, the, um, your gender at birth, yeah. right? Like we yeah. have all those, exist. all of these yeah. things. Now we're into, now we're into new territory. Right. I think as a culture, because of, right. because all of these things have been loosened from their moral underpinnings and foundations and been put into play for political leverage. Right. And so churches are stuck in that. a lot of There's this. more than that though. Cause yeah. winsomeness, winsomeness goes back even further than that. Oh, sure. Right? Totally. Yeah. This concept of being a winsome church is the concept of being a church. Like you said, the, the, a church that unbelievers are going to come to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. By the way, not every church has that. Mm, true. Um, especially if you're looking at um, mainline denominational churches mm-hmm. and even some evangelical churches that that emanate out of those mainline churches, mm-hmm. the church is for the people who come to church. Mm. Mm-hmm. If other people wander in somewhere during the line, mm-hmm. great. We're glad you, glad to have you, glad to add you to the church's role, glad to... Here's how we do things. Here's, exactly, right? But we're not in the role of saying, hey, church is really good for you. You should come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Evangelical churches, the evangel concept, the concept of sharing the good news, carries with it the reality that the world is lost and needs to hear Christ. Right. And the church has done some amazing stuff in the last 30 years yeah. to be winsome. For example, we have changed our music, mm-hmm. much to the chagrin of many people. Yeah. We have changed our music because we want to make sure we want our music to actually reach people who like music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and. We are careful with the words we use from the pulpit. We have, a, you know, we in a podcast, we use all these theological terms, right? We yeah. introduce those. Like there was a day when you just heard, heard all those of those. All the time. Without explanation. Like you'd yeah. have to pull the pastor aside. Like you'd have to like humble yourself a bit and pull the pastor aside after the service to ask for clarification on those words he used. Yeah. Or you'd go to like your strong concordance that every good Christian would have every, owned. Yeah. Or or your theological textbook that you would have had in the house to like look it up later exactly. to try and figure that out. Yeah. 
Um, but now, you know, yeah, in the last 30 years, um, we've become more conscious of our Christianese sure. Sure. and we try to communicate, you know, in, uh, in mass in ways that somebody who just walked, not mass as an like E N M A S. Yeah. Anyway. It, um, yeah, so, right. um, we try to communicate in ways that would invite people in yeah. and not be barriers to communicating the gospel. I've even seen churches that have rewritten done an amazing job of rewriting their doctrinal statement mm, mm-hmm. to make their doctrinal statement as understandable to the average guy, right. which is awesome. So yeah, vocabulary was the, the other thing. We A lot of churches have pulled out their pews of various sizes and put in chairs because chairs are more comfortable and chairs are what we normally sit in. And, and chairs... a lot of churches can pull all those chairs out and play basketball yeah. and bring people into the... But yeah. the, you know, the <laughs> other thing that's nice about a chair is that a chair gives you defined territory. Mm-hmm. So if, you are an un, if you're an unchurched person walking in, you don't have to sit in a pew that is just a long bench and not know where your territory ends and the next person's territory begins. There's with chairs lined up and ganged together. There's a nice little crack that says, "This is my territory. That's your territory. Don't cross over into my territory." Oh, interesting. There's some theology behind that, then. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so there's there's <laughs> things going on. So here's the thing, right? We have worked at being winsome and mm-hmm. trying to communicate, and I would even say along your your concept, you come out of the 1980s and you come out with of. The moral majority, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, the 700 Club, this whole entree into the world where the church is saying, here's what God says, and he's a Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dobson, Jim Dobson. Yeah, Jim that, Dobson's yeah. another one of those guys, right? And and people responded to that, maybe, we'll talk about that in a minute, I uh-huh. think, negatively and said, oh, the church is just a bunch of politicians going to this, this, that, and the other thing, right? So then you come to the other side with like an Andy Stanley who's like, no, no, come on in. We're, we, we just, I'm just going to stand here next to my TV, my flat screen TV, and everything's going to be fine. And, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm gonna not going to stand here with a necktie like my dad used to do. We're just going to talk and it's going to be good. And that whole winsome church thing. Mm-hmm was this development to say positively, Mm -hmm. God isn't a politician and God actually likes many of the things that you like. Mm -hmm. So come and participate in what God's doing. Yeah. Right? All of those things were good, except when you start losing truth anchors. Yeah, and I think one of those areas that's so that has become it's just, it's just insidious, right? Like you start looking at things that are well-defined sin. Yeah, and you try you you know at first you're trying to explain to somebody who's lost and perhaps participating in that sin, saying, "Listen, like ultimately, like God hates this sin, but loves you, and I want you here, and He wants you here. You're you will you you are welcomed into this space, and hopefully, you know." That you you will you will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. You'll repent of this sin and move forward. Um, but now, like we also we own those sins so tightly that they're not just sin; they're identity markers. Yeah, 
Yeah. And so now we have to tell somebody, yeah, your identity marker is something God hates. Right. Right. And that, right. so like, I think people with a pastoral heart and, and, and There's people, the issue. Yep. and people with, um, an evangelicalistic, man, evangelistic, yeah. that's the word I was trying to hunt down. Term of the day, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There with that heart to win the lost and who cares for people the way that our Lord cares for people. We're left trying to figure out what to do, right? Like, how do I tell this person whose who's, um, chief identity marker is sin? Yeah, yeah. That the Lord wants them. Yeah. So you might hear something interesting. So I started in pastoral ministry in uh, 1987. I graduated from seminary. Mm-hmm. Couple months waiting, looking for ch- for a church. Found one November nineteen eighty seven. I started started pastoral ministry. I remember preaching sermons in nineteen eighty eight to a very staunch, very conservative theology, not not politics. Mm-hmm. This is this is a unfortunately yeah, some overlap in those terms. Unfortunately, right? we have overlapping terms, and I think yeah. I think that that's that's to our detriment, but. Mm-hmm very conservative theologically group of believers and proclaiming to them that while God hated the defamation of marriage when couples lived together, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we needed to reach our neighbors who were living together in sin Mm -hmm. and invite them to church. Right. That we needed, and, and, in this church, also there was that there was they were going through a huge, huge issue of turbulence because the church that I was pastoring at the time also did not accept membership for couples who had been divorced and remarried, hmm. and the push became: listen, God loves people who have been divorced, right, and He wants them in church so that. God loves people who are living with uh, their girlfriend or boyfriend, and he wants us to bring them to church. He wants them us to get them here. And here, here's some of those roots of the winsome church that are positive, and that is uh, the whole concept of Romans 10 is how shall they hear unless somebody share it with them, preach it to them, proclaim it to them. They're not going to hear it unless you bring them right. to church. Right. You know, uh, Jim Cimbala, pastor, pastors or pastored, I, I haven't kept track of him lately, but he pastored uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, one of the things that he talks about in one of the books that he's written is that in his church in the evening service, there's, he's got a, it's an old, it's an old theater. So mm-hmm. if he's got one section up in the, uh, in his balcony that is all, um, um, transgenders hmm. who come to his church every week. He's got another he's got another section in the balcony. They could be anywhere, but they choose to sit together in the balcony. Uh, uh, I was say, does he like segregate them no, over there? Segregate. No. It's just that they come and they sit they together each, yeah, because they know each other. He's got another he's got another section of his church that are they're all prostitutes. Hmm. And before they start work, they come the church at his church in Brooklyn and they're all kind of in one section and he's got the transgenders up here in another section and and they come to his church because they know that even though he's preaching Jesus 
they're welcomed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There's the winsomeness, right? Right. They're welcomed. And the church needs to be welcoming. Mm-hmm. But not let down on, you know, the reality of, you know, your your sin is separating you from God. Yeah. There's a um there was an interesting moment in the last I think it was in the last week where there was a young woman who was invited to like the national it was a national prayer breakfast that just happened. And, yeah, uh, yes. She's standing up, like telling the hilarious the story. Yeah. Congressman, yeah, yeah, telling the hilarious story about how, you know, she had to get up here early and her fiance kept pulling her back into bed with her with him and you know, your fiance went pulled her back in bed with him and um, you know, don't go, but no, I needed to be here and pray with you, you know, with you all and you know, these pastors who are celebrating her presence and everything and and her leadership in that area. Yeah. And like there are a lot of us and the, there are a lot of us who are looking at that going like, why are we excited about this? Why is this person on the platform? Is it just because they're a congressman? Right. And I think right. that these are areas where we're just leaving ourselves exposed. And I guess the, the question is, what's the, is there wisdom? Is there a line? Like, what are we supposed to do? Cause at some point, like you want people to actually know Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus and mourn their sin and pursue the cross and pursue the reconciliation that comes from it. And at some point it's our obligation to speak into somebody's life and say, Hey, that's sin. Yes. God hates this. Yeah. And that's, that's the loving thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, the loving thing to do is to, is, is to share the fullness of Christ and that he, here's the deal. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take away all sin. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't have to make excuses for people's sin. Mm. Mm-hmm. The glory of the cross is that here's my, here's my weekly offense, right? <laughs> oh, good. The glory of the cross is if you're a homosexual, Jesus Christ died for you and he can take away your sin. Mm. Mm-hmm. The glory of the cross is if you're living with your boyfriend, girlfriend, um, the glory of the cross is that Jesus Christ died to take away all of your sin. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a drug addict today, Jesus Christ died to take away all of your sin. Right now, the homosexuals are upset because they just equated them with drug addicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But isn't, isn't sin sin? Yes. And therein lies the problem. The person who has been divorced three times mm-hmm. and is currently living with number four, John chapter four. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take away all of your sin. Right. But here's, here's the exciting thing, and that is he takes away all of your sin. So I'm telling you, we're telling you as a winsome church mm-hmm. that says, come. Yeah. We, we, don't, we, don't have, we don't have a sign up that says, uh, you know, no unmarried couples allowed. Right. We don't have a homosexuals only section of the room. We do not. No. Nope. 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 We don't have that. We we don't have we don't have any place. There's there isn't an evangelical church in this world that will tell you that you need to get your drug habit under control before you can come to church. Hmm. The winsome the truly winsome church says, We welcome you here where you are. Because we expect the power of the gospel is strong enough 
to take you from where you are to where you need to be. Yeah. And I think like so much of this for, for many of us is not controversial. I mean, I think right. if you're somebody who's in a place where you were, where you've made sin your identity marker, like, I think maybe what you're listening to is painful. Yes. Um, yeah, I can understand. And that. it needs to be. Yeah. You know, just out of f the fullness of love here, that needs to be painful that we've singled out something and called it sin in your life. Um, but I think, you know, the struggle for a lot of churches right now is how to make all of this work. I think we like it on paper. Yeah. You know, yeah. like on, on paper, like we like the idea of being the kind of church that anybody can walk into and feel loved, but the actual like practice therein is really hard. Um, on either side of this, I remember having somebody call up our church years ago and ask if we were open and affirming, um, uh, you know, of homosexuality. And I said, um, we're not affirming, but you're welcome to come. And, or, you know, we would, we would happily have people here who, who are homosexual. Yes, we we're would. just not affirming. <clears throat> and I think it was a person just trying to find a church that was anti-homosexuality and which I am, it's a sin, right? Yeah. But they're trying to find a church that had that stance of anti-homosexuality. Like, we don't like you <laughs> to attend. And they never darkened the door of our building. Right. Um, because I said, no, people who are gay are welcome to be in my church. Um, yeah. But from there, like, and I think a lot of larger churches and other churches in, the, in our area and in the United States move, have shifted from a point of, be, of being in that place, which I think is very solidly biblical. And now they're moving into these places of like in their effort to be winsome, you know, are, are, are encouraging, are allowing even encouraging people who are openly practicing sin to assume leadership responsibility, yeah. to have membership, to, yeah. um, to yeah. be on staff. Um, and uh, that's where we're running into some trouble. Sure. And I think it's where the church is going to get into trouble. We had an interesting conversation. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a woman in the church last week. She said uh, she met a couple that I had talked to 10 years ago. Mm. This is, so I have a policy. I, I, I recognize that people get divorced mm -hmm. um, and that people get remarried. Mm -hmm. um, it has always been my policy that I, 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 I'll do the first wedding. Mm. Um, but if you get divorced uh, and you want to remarry, um, the Bible, the Bible says that God hates divorce. So uh, I'm just kind of looking at that and saying, you know, that stinks. I love you. Here's what God says. Um, I, I'm not going to do a wedding. Yeah, I can't officiate the I wedding. I can't officiate that, yeah. right? If, if you want to get married, please go get married. Mm -hmm. I can't officiate that. I mm -hmm. can't, you know. So anyway, this couple had contacted me. They'd been coming to the church probably about six, eight months and uh, living together, mm -hmm. didn't I didn't throw them out because they were living together. They mm -hmm. they uh, they asked me if I'd come by their house. So I came by, had a great time. Uh, we we were drinking coffee together, talking all, about all kinds of things, getting to know them. And they said, uh, "Hey, we uh, we want to get married. Mm -hmm. um, would you do the wedding?" And I said, "That's awesome. I'm glad that you want to get married." And that, by the way, is a true statement. I'm mm -hmm. glad whenever. A couple who's living together decides that they need to get married because mm -hmm. it's a right thing. Um, but I said, I said, have you have you been married before? Well, both of them had been married at least once. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I'm not going to do the wedding. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sorry. Here's my line. Yeah. Okay. 
love the fact that you want to get married. I can't officiate it. No, you can't get married in my church either because mm -hmm. they wanted a church wedding. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that is, but they wanted a church wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, They stopped coming. Yeah. Because their ulterior motive was we want, we want God to bless what he says he can't bless. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can't do your wedding, but I really want you to come to church. Yeah. Well, they're going to some other church now, I think. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, there are lines that we cross. Yeah. That just, I think of Fiddler on the Roof. Classic. Classic, yeah. right? Yeah. Classic musical, right? Mm -hmm. um, so many, so many intriguing and wonderful lessons being taught in that, in mm -hmm. that, um, that musical. Um, for those of you who have lived under a rock all of your life and have never watched Fiddler on the Roof. Or just born after the 80s. Please go, go look it up. I think it's yeah. on, I think it's on Prime. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. You can at least rent it from there. Yeah, right. So, uh. The story of a, a Russian Jewish man named Tevia, he has, and it's really the story focuses on he, his community, um, and the four daughters that he has raised. Well, one, two, three, three daughters that he is raising. And uh, he is drawn in his traditions to various lines that he needs to cross. The first one, of course, is, is his first daughter wants to marry um, a young man that she has grown up with rather than getting uh, getting a, a marriage created by a matchmaker, which is the cultural thing. Mm -hmm. And Tevia wisely works through that and says, okay, this is a cultural thing mm -hmm. and I can handle the cultural thing. Okay, get married. The second daughter falls in love with a, uh, a communist mm. um, who doesn't live in the community. He struggles with the fact that uh, she's fallen in love with this communist, uh, that they want to get married, uh, that they're going to move far away because he's he's been sent, the communist has been sent by the czar to Siberia, and he has to let go of his daughter, and he says, can I do this? And he says, this is familial, this is cultural, I can let that go. The third daughter marries a Gentile. Hmm. The third daughter defies him, goes out, gets married, comes back and says, I've married, and I've married this Gentile. And Tevia says, you're dead to me. Hmm. And it's amazing in its teaching because it says, okay, there's a line here. This is cultural. I can cross that. There's a line here. This is just the way we've always done it. I can cross that. Mm -hmm. There's a line here. This line has everything to do with my relationship with God and my family's relationship with God and our ongoing blessing with God. And I'm sorry, but God is involved here. I can't cross that line. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of Christians and pastors are in this world where we are saying, okay, I've crossed this line. That one's cultural. Cross this line. That one's cultural. Now I'm at a point where I have a line, and it's spiritual, it's God-given, it's God-breathed, it's God-directed, it's truth. And the argument is, but you've crossed all of these other lines. Why can't you cross this one? Right. And it's because I'm not crossing a tradition line. I'm crossing a spiritual line. Mm -hmm. 
And we don't have those very well defined in the Winsome Church. Yeah, I think that's, that's really a key issue. I think so many are interpreting all of these lines through just through culture first or through a, um, a, a heart of compassion first. And they're not allowing scripture to do its job. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and so, you know, you end up in a place where once you give up, once you give up the scriptural line, you really don't have any more. Right, right, exactly. And right. and now there's, who are you? We're not, we're not the church. No. We're not the church. Yeah. So here's one thing we were talking about too, which we probably should incorporate here too, and that is, don't let outside forces other than your church and God's word. Sounds pretty Roman Catholic, so let's just <laughs> boil it down to your God's word. Yeah. Right? Because we're, we're hoping you go to a church that loves the Bible and preaches it. Yep. Don't let somebody outside exaggerate reality and force you away from truth. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that I've noticed. The sources of our information in our world are yelling at you with exaggeration, with fear, with... with Motive. Yeah. Mo motive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as we were talking about this, um, all, of, all of the media, all of the television news bureaus in our nation are owned by the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. So if the entertainment industry wants you to go and see their movie, they will start telling you to see it through the news first. nine months earlier by telling it to you in the news. Yeah. All right. They will yell and scream, oh, all is lost. Now, um, there was an old joke that used to say, if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would the headline be? And, and uh, you know, the old saying was the New York Times headline would be, world to end tomorrow, women and children hardest hit. <laughs> um, <laughs> because every media out there, conservative media, Boy. mainstream media, print media, visual media, they will all tell you the story from their perspective and they will exaggerate it and they will scream it and they will yell it. And it will make you feel like you're a minority if you don't agree with their take. Exactly. Right? And the Bible is the only truth you need to stand on. Mm -hmm. So you hear a news story, run it through the filter of truth. Is this, is this what God says? Yeah. Is this how God said life would go? Is yeah. this, is this within, yeah. is this something that is consistent with God's character? Yeah. Like even, even the book of Revelation, if I'm making deductions, mm -hmm. even basic deductions about what God is doing in my world, is God in the book of Revelation going to hit the wide receiver mm -hmm. with what he's saying? Mm -hmm. Does this, this statement, this stuff that is being talked about, does this take me away from it? Mm -hmm. Does it fit with the truth or not? Um, it, both sides, right? Um, I talked about um, many years ago, there was, a, there was something called the uh, American Disability Act, the ADA. 
all of, all the world in the United States, all of the U.S. Mm-hmm. adheres <laughs> to the ADA. It's something that came out in the Bush administration. Uh, I remember listening to uh, Jim Dobson at the time decrying the fact that the ADA was going to make was going to force churches to become um, um, open to homosexuality. Hmm. And I remember hearing that and hearing him rant about that and saying, man, how, how? How does the need to put an elevator in your building? Yeah. Or to wrap the pipes in my bathroom so that, you know, somebody who's paralyzed doesn't accidentally cut themselves or Mm -hmm. injured themselves on on an open pipe. You know, how does that, how does putting ramps in my church uh, cause a problem and of course eventually what happened is the ADA goes, gets passed and churches are exempt from that by the way mm-hmm. we don't have to have a six foot turning radius in any bathroom that we create because we're not under that responsibility we create a six foot turning radius in our bathrooms to be to because we care sensitive for people. because we and care. we care for people who are in wheelchairs so yeah. that they can get in use the toilet right yeah. that's what we do mm-hmm. But it had nothing to do with, I suppose these days when they're forcing people to put in transgender bathrooms, I don't know, has nothing to do with accommodation mm-hmm. of the disabled, has everything to do with being gracious. Now, there are those that would argue, should the government have to tell me that? Um, and I just remind myself that the government of Haiti told people that they didn't have to have building standards and when they got hit with an earthquake even their own their own uh, presidential palace pancaked because they didn't do any kind of building codes in the country so mm-hmm. you know <laughs> are building codes good they can be yeah yeah so i guess circling this whole thing back around cuz that I think the topic is a good, like, what we're closing with here is probably a good, like, appendix to the idea, right? An application to this larger idea. But ultimately, like, our our primary objective as people who love Jesus is to anchor our decision-making through on Scripture and through Scripture and our understanding of the gospel. And with that, there is a huge amount of winsomeness that we have yet to engage in that we need to. Yeah. Right, like we are, we are not as welcoming as we should be. Not nearly. Um, we have a lot of barriers to entry that we need to address and break down. Um, it's a, we've had some good starts, but there are some areas that you, we really should address as a church, as a as a global church. And maybe the church you're going to is working on that. The church needs to be winsome. Yep. We don't don't pack it up and call it. No, this is just for members only. That's not how this works. Um, However, at the same time, recognize that um, we need to be winsome according to the standards of Scripture. Yes. And the need to share the gospel. Yes. Not according to the perspective of the world that has a different objective and a different um, goal than we do. Right. Right. Um, And they'll shout those goals. Yeah. Those goals. The world's goal is 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 wealth. It's power. It's 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 uh, influence. Influence and abuse. Uh, it's all the things that are anti-Christ. Um, and the louder the world is, the, the, and the more angrily it advocates for those things, the more as Christians we need to be careful and suspect. Um, but at the same time, we can't let those things shake us from being uh, liberal with the gospel and liberal with our kindness 
and liberal with our openness and our willingness to be uncomfortable so that the lost mm-hmm. can know Jesus. Yeah. So that's where we need to be as a winsome people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully that's helpful for you as you're listening to this. Hopefully we've won you over and you're going to share this podcast with a friend and have a great conversation over breakfast and about it. And come to church on Sunday. And then join us. We'd love to have you. Or if you're not local, um, find a church that preaches the gospel. Yes. Go to that one. And yes. uh, we'll uh, see you back here next time. Thanks, everybody. We'll, we'll see you soon. You have been listening to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast with Pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Artwork by Caitlin Gallagher, music by San Demetrius, and engineering help from Ashley Gallagher. To find out more about us, head to Marsh Corner.